And Father, now as we come to your word, we thank you for your word. And Father, we remember how dependent we are on your Holy Spirit to illuminate the text for us, that we may not only fill our minds with knowledge, but that our hearts would be filled with faith as we study your word. Without the Spirit, we would be lost. We could not understand. We would be natural men coming up with natural explanations for things that you have done in your power. We would have no understanding without the Holy Spirit. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would be with us, that he would instruct us, that he would convict us, and that we would be trained for righteousness in every way as we study your word today in order that Christ would be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at John chapter 3, verses 11 to 13 today. And you know, as, uh, as, as we were singing Show Us Christ this morning, I was uh, thinking about the, the text that we're looking at today and the, the point of this text. And I was thinking about how there are certain circles of Christianity who would say that a church like us uh, downplays the role of the Holy Spirit. They would say that, you know, we, we, we would be a church that doesn't uh, believe that the Holy Spirit is active, when the truth is we believe that the Holy Spirit is actually necessary in order for us to understand anything about the text. So the Holy Spirit is, uh, is very much a part of what we believe is necessary necessary for us to even come to to the simplest understanding of biblical truth. The great Puritan uh, author and and theologian and philosopher and pastor Jonathan Edwards recognized that there are really two types of, uh, of divine truth. There is natural knowledge, which is entirely uh, head knowledge. It's all academic. It's all intellectual. You might, uh, you might call it intellectual or, or head knowledge or whatever you want to call it, but it's, it's knowledge that only exists in the head. And this, he said, quote, consists in having a natural or rational knowledge of the things of religion or such a knowledge as is to be obtained by the natural exercise of our own faculties without any special illumination of the Spirit of God. End quote. So that's the first type of knowledge uh, that, that Jonathan Edwards recognized. And the second kind of knowledge of divine truth is what he called spiritual knowledge. And this, he argued, quote, principally consists in the sense of the heart, end quote. In other words, it involves, it involves the heart. It involves the emotions. It involves a person's will. It involves a person's affections, the things that a person finds joy in. He explained that spiritual knowledge is knowledge that is, quote, not evident by the light of nature. It depends on revelation, end quote. And he added this. He said, it cannot be said that we come to the knowledge of any part of the Christian truth by the light of nature. It is only the word of God contained in the Old and New Testament which teaches us this spiritual knowledge. And he'd go on to explain how we even understand that knowledge. And that is by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So to summarize... These, these two types of truth, uh, spiritual truths, we need both. We need head knowledge, 
But head knowledge in and of itself isn't sufficient. We also need heart knowledge. We, we, we need to embrace the truths of Scripture with our hearts. Our hearts must have a knowledge of the truth. And yet, it is entirely per, uh, possible for a person to have a, a complete disconnect between what goes in their minds and what goes down to their hearts. Because a rebellious hardened heart will prevent the mind from accepting and believing spiritual truth. This is why the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. One of the most frightening realities that the Bible confronts us with is that it is entirely possible for a person to appear outwardly to be a Christian and yet to remain under the wrath of God as an unregenerate sinner. There are people who go to church every single week and they fill their minds with knowledge, with with intellectual food, and yet their lives remain unchanged because their hearts are still far from God. So they look on the surface like they're they're doing all the right things. If you go down the checklist, they're doing all the right things, and yet they remain dead in their sins, unregenerate. The Bible repeatedly warns us of this reality. You'll remember that that Jesus told the parable of the wheat and tares to illustrate the reality of this this issue. Uh, Paul admonished his readers, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Peter admonished his readers, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. So what we have to understand is that it's possible for a person to spend their life going to church, reading the Bible, praying regularly, maybe even listening to Christian radio, maybe even acting very, very morally, doing all the right things, going down the checklist and and checking off all the boxes, and yet to do all these things while still dead in their trespasses and sins. And if we are honest about what various studies and various polls have revealed about Americans who attend church, we have to confess that this seems to be the case, that massive numbers of unregenerate people are filling American pews each and every week. It is at an epidemic level. And friends, if it is tragic that the pews might be filled with pagans, how much more tragic is it when the pulpit is filled with pagans. In 1979, James Montgomery Boyce was heavily involved in the battle for inerrancy, uh, the inerrancy of the, uh, the Bible, and he wrote a little booklet in which he wrote the following. He said, quote, most laymen do not realize how bad this situation is because most ministers are not quite honest in saying openly what they are thinking. The place where they do speak their minds is in gatherings of other ministers. In one such gathering, an evangelical argued a point on the basis of the Bible's teaching. He referred to the words of Jesus and spoke of Jesus' promised return when he had finished. A professor in one of our leading Protestant seminaries stood up to discredit his testimony. He said, quote, you cannot appeal to the teaching of Jesus Christ because we don't know what Jesus really taught. The Gospels are contradictory at this point. Each of them has been written to correct the others. So far as Christ's return is concerned, we have simply got to get it into our heads that Jesus is never coming back and that all these things are going, uh, going to continue on as they have from the beginning, end quote. It's from somebody who 
teaches pastors back in 1979. Now, it'd be really nice for us to say, well, that's got to be just a, a small handful of, of very, very liberal theologians. But that is unfortunately not the case. Even at the time, in 1979, even at the time, uh, James Boyce was able to cite a survey that was conducted which revealed that 57% of Baptist ministers answered no to the question, do you believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God? 57% said no, and that was in 1979. And things have become significantly worse, much, uh, much more postmodern, much less biblical since then in our nation. And so we can only guess how high that number might be today, but it would almost certainly be higher. That most pastors would say no when asked, do you believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God? We have to see how tragic this is. I mean, it seems like such a waste of a life. It seems like such a, a waste of time, a waste of energy to, to spend time, maybe even you know, uh, the majority of one's life, reading and studying the Bible and yet remain completely lost and in rebellion toward God. And yet this description has been there for a long, long time. It's been present for a long, long time. Nicodemus is actually somebody who would fit this description. As we've been studying the new birth as revealed in the conversation that took place between Nicodemus and Jesus at the Passover feast, what is probably, almost unquestionably, the most famous conversation that has taken place in all of history. Jesus has specifically pointed out that Nicodemus is a representative of the type of person who might put a, a very, very shallow, superficial faith in Jesus, but is entirely lacking when it comes to grasping spiritual truth. In this sense, Nicodemus is a representative not only of the Pharisees, but of all mankind. Nicodemus came to Jesus apparently somewhat privately, although it's in a public setting. It's at, at the Passover feast. And he comes to entice Jesus, it seemed. He says, teacher, we know that you're from God. You know, you're doing all these miracles. You're doing all these signs. And we know that if somebody's doing these things, they have to be from God. Never mind what Deuteronomy says about somebody who claims to be from God and does signs but doesn't obey God, doesn't line up with what God has said. Uh, apparently Nicodemus had overlooked that part. But Jesus interrupted him, saying to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus responded by asking yet another question. He said, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So we saw... How this revealed, how his response revealed just a complete lack of understanding on Nicodemus' behalf. He couldn't make any sense of what Jesus was saying because Nicodemus was not thinking spiritually. Indeed, he could not think spiritually. He was incapable of grasping spiritual truth. And Jesus went on to illustrate the new birth for him, saying, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so this provoked Nicodemus to ask a second question. He says, How can these things be? How can these things be? And what did Jesus say to him? 
Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? In other words, he's saying, Nicodemus, how is it even possible that you're the teacher of Israel? Notice he says you're not a teacher, but the teacher, which is a very interesting detail there. But he says you're, you're, you're the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand the new birth? You have no understanding of, of this reality? But, but here's one thing that we have to understand about Jesus. When he asks a question, he knows the answer. We're talking about God in the flesh here. Jesus is fully man, fully God. He, he knows all things. It, and when he asks a question, it's not for the sake of, of gathering or, or gaining information. He doesn't ask a question because he's confused. He doesn't answer a question or ask a question because he's ignorant. He asks a question in order to hold a mirror up in front of somebody to show them something about themselves. And that's what he's doing here. Remember what we saw at the end of chapter 2. If your Bible's open, if, if you look at the end of chapter 2, it says, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So let's take that truth and plug it in here. And understand that when Jesus asks this question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he does know the answer. And he's giving grace to Nicodemus. He's giving Nicodemus the chance to think about it to reflect on why it is that he doesn't understand something that he should understand, why he doesn't know the first thing about the new birth. And while it probably seemed incredibly offensive and embarrassing to somebody like Nicodemus, the truth is that Jesus is doing this out of grace and mercy. He didn't owe Nicodemus anything. But he gave him a chance to see himself in the, tr in the, the, the mirror of God's truth. But that brings us to our passage today, where Jesus will provide an answer to the question that he asked Nicodemus. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 13 today, and the point of this passage is that regeneration is necessary for understanding spiritual truth. Regeneration is necessary for understanding spiritual truth. In a nutshell, that's the answer to the question that Jesus asked. Nicodemus, how is it possible that you, the teacher of Israel, don't know anything about the new birth? And the answer is because regeneration is necessary for understanding spiritual truth. You must be born again. So let's start by, uh, by looking at verses 11 to 13. John chapter 3. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now there's something that we have to make note of here. There's a, a drastic change that just happened we can very easily miss. The conversation between, uh, that was exclusively between Jesus and Nicodemus is essentially over at this point, uh, it would seem. Because when we come to verse 11, the pronouns start to change. 
Uh, and it's an unfortunate that the English language doesn't have a word for you that, uh, that we can see immediately refers to multiple people. I mean, we have y'all, uh, but, but that's a, a little bit informal. Uh, so, but when Jesus says in verse 11, you do not accept our testimony, he's not saying you, Nicodemus. He's saying y'all. <laughs> y'all don't accept our testimony. So he's not only addressing Nicodemus here. He's addressing everybody who's in the room. Now, the NIV does a really nice job, actually, of of reflecting this change. The NIV translates verse 11 this way. It says, Very truly, I, uh, I tell you, we speak not of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Uh, so that, that seems like a good way to do it. Uh, the term you people reflects the change from singular you to plural you. But given that Nicodemus isn't recorded as saying anything else here or, or elsewhere, what happened to him? Where did he go? Did he, did he walk away? Did, did he stay? Did Jesus just decide that uh, what he had to say applied to everyone, uh, you know, all these people who had a, a shallow, superficial faith in Jesus, and so he addressed all of them as well? We don't know. We, don't, we, we can't be sure. But what we can see is that Jesus now starts addressing everybody who is within earshot. He's preaching, essentially. But what we know about Nicodemus is this. We do know this. We know that he was not an uneducated man. He, he was, rather, an educated man. He wasn't stupid. He, he may have been foolish, but he certainly wasn't stupid. But what he shows us here is that the greatest obstacle to receiving spiritual truth, the greatest obstacle to understanding spiritual truth, the greatest obstacle to grasping spiritual truth, the greatest obstacle to living by spiritual truth isn't a person's intellect. It's not a person's wisdom, you know, intelligence or, or lack thereof. It's the rebellious nature of the human heart. It's the rebellious nature of the unregenerate human heart. This is one of the most astounding things about spiritual truth. These are truths we're talking about that are so simple that a child can understand them, but those truths are so foreign and and so foolish to natural man that apart from God's grace in illuminating those truths through the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, Even the most intelligent, even the most educated, even the most sophisticated person in the world will not understand them and will not grasp them. Nicodemus had studied the Old Testament. He was probably capable of reciting, you know, really big portions of it, I would imagine, from memory. But here's the thing. He wasn't changed by it. He wasn't changed by it. His his life hadn't been transformed. He was still unregenerate. He was still very pride. He was still egotistical. He wasn't humbled by it. He wasn't smitten with grief over his sin by it. How is that even possible? Because he wasn't born again. 
because he was still unregenerate. At least he wasn't born again yet. I mean, it does seem very likely that uh, he eventually was born again, that he eventually was regenerated. In John chapter 19, what we'll see is he, he does participate in the burial of Jesus. He brings an absolutely immense amount of, uh, of herbs and spices, of myrrh and aloes to bury Jesus with. And because of that, uh, most scholars, most theologians, most students of the Bible think that he was eventually born again. I think he was probably born again, but he's not there yet. It starts with Jesus puncturing his ego here, putting a flat tire on on his ego, on his self-esteem right here in chapter 3. He's confused. Jesus is speaking in very clear terms for him. But he's confused. It makes no sense to him. He's, he's ignorant, even though he has devoted his entire life to studying the Scriptures because regeneration is necessary for understanding spiritual truth. But you have to see Jesus' grace here. Jesus confronts his unbelief. He confronts the complete absence of faith of Nicodemus. Look what he says in verse 11. I realize that this is worded in a way that's very, very confusing, uh, but we're going to make some sense of it here today. He says to Nicodemus and and everyone in the room, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. The thing that makes this confusing is where Jesus says, we speak of what we know. Who's we? is, is, he, is he talking about uh, himself and, and who else? Uh, who is that? Who constitutes the we that Jesus is referring to here? Let me start by saying uh, there's no consensus on that. Uh, scholars are extremely divided on that, but let me also say that even though scholars and, and pastors and students of the Bible are, are divided on who we would be, uh, it, it's not something that we need to spend a lot of time worrying about. Um, it, it's not a, a crucial thing for us to understand, and I think all of the explanations that commentaries um, you know, offer in terms of, of understanding who we is, would work and would lead us to the same conclusions. Uh, I mean, what do you do when, um, when you're reading your Bible and you come across something that you don't understand? What do you do when you come across the, your, you know, something like this where uh, you don't know who we would refer to? Um, well, the, the rule for interpreting Scripture is that Scripture interprets Scripture, uh, but we also realize that some passages are significantly clearer than others. Some are very difficult to understand. Some are very easy to understand. And so when you come across a passage that isn't crystal clear in its meaning, first of all, part of the point of this sermon is you pray for the Holy Spirit to give you understanding. That's part of the application of this passage, our, relying, uh, our reliance on the illumination that only the Holy Spirit can give us. Uh, secondly, you, you examine the immediate context. A couple verses backward, a couple verses forward. You know, may, maybe the answer will be in there. If that doesn't help, uh, maybe examine the larger, the, the broader context, maybe the whole book, uh, maybe even the whole New Testament, maybe the whole Bible uh, to find an answer. Uh, one possible answer for who we is here is that Jesus is referring to the Holy Trinity. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's certainly a possibility. There's nothing that precludes it. There's nothing that eliminates that possibility as a possibility. Um, 
Another option is that it's Jesus and his disciples. His disciples are there with him. I mean, John records this, so John was, was obviously there. Um, although this seems to be a little bit less likely, given we haven't been told uh, about the disciples testifying to anything yet. Uh, but that would be an argument from silence, uh, so it, it's, it's still a possibility. Maybe Jesus is talking about the prophets of the Old Testament and himself. And I would say that seems actually pretty likely, uh, given that he's just asked how Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, doesn't know anything about the new birth. Because the new birth had been foretold, right? Uh, we, We see it actually foreshadowed, first of all, back in Deuteronomy chapter 29, when Moses told the Israelites that the Lord had not yet given them a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. So that's, that's, that's saying there's a need here that has not yet been met. What would, that, what would it take for God to give us a new heart, to give us eyes to see, to give us ears to hear? Because he's not talking to physically blind and deaf people. He's talking to spiritually blind and deaf people. Uh, we also saw that it's in Ezekiel chapter 36. Reference to the, to the new birth is found in Ezekiel 36. So Ezekiel testified of it. Moses testified of it. And now Jesus has testified of it. And that's at least enough to justify using the pronoun we, right, in this context. But whoever, uh, whoever this refers to, whoever we uh, includes, it includes Jesus. And he's telling Nicodemus and everyone present that even though he and whoever else, have testified to what they've seen, Jesus says, you, y'all, don't accept our testimony. So who, who is who's the plural you? It's the people for whom Jesus had performed miracles and signs at the Passover feast at the end of chapter 2. It's the people who put a shallow, superficial faith that would not last in Jesus, a faith that Jesus would not accept. And now we see why he wouldn't accept them. Because they do not accept his testimony. And what testimony is that? You must. Not you should. You must be born again. You must be born again. It's it's not presented as if it's optional, is it? No, you must be born again. There's a really well-known pastor, I'm sure you've heard of him, uh, who some years ago was on uh, the Fox News Network telling people that they should try Jesus for 60 days. And if you don't like him, well, at least you tried. That is a pitiful and horrendous attitude to have toward Christ and his gospel. He's not a shirt that you can try on and return it if you don't like the way it fits you. He's not a car that you can test drive and bring back if you don't like it. He is the Lord. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How many of you would advise a hardened criminal to try obeying the government for 60 days? And if you don't like it, well, at least you gave it a shot. What kind of advice is that? What kind of counsel is that? How much do you have to hate somebody to to tell them something like that, to give them that kind of counsel? You should just try it for 60 days, and if you don't like it, eh, at least you tried. He isn't saying that you should consider being born again. He's saying you must be born again. 
How does the, heart, the human heart respond to that imperative? It's an imperative. It's a command. It's, it, it's, it's something that's necessary. It's a statement. It's not optional. How does the human heart respond to that? In defiance. In rebellion. I don't have to be anything. Who's, who's this Jesus to tell me what to do? That's what the human heart, the natural, unregenerate human heart says in response. The natural, unregenerate man will not accept that statement. And indeed, the natural man cannot. Why? Because it's spiritual truth, and regeneration is necessary for understanding spiritual truth. The natural heart of man is a heart of stone, and it will not obey or submit to or surrender to or put faith in God. In the new birth, God gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart of living flesh, a heart that responds to God's calling in submission and obedience. In regeneration, God promises to put his spirit within us. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So what can we do without that? What can we do without the spirit dwelling within us? Well, at the very least, we can say we will not walk in accordance with his statutes and we would never be careful to observe his ordinances. And this is why I say that the social justice movement gets it all wrong. It, it's completely backwards. Their, their goal is behavior modification. What people need is a new heart. Yeah, they need to change their ways. Okay, great, but let's, let's put the, the, the cart behind the horse. The gospel comes first. The gospel changes lives. The go hearing the gospel is how a person comes to faith. And the message given to the church is the gospel. It's a message of heart transformation. That's what the gospel does. But this is what Jesus is saying to, to Nicodemus, assuming he's still present, and the others who are still listening. You've heard our testimony and you still don't believe us. Whoever us might be referring to. In truthfulness, all the options work. All the options for figuring out who we refers to works and leads to the same understanding and application. And Jesus continues in, in verse 12. He says, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Again, this is kind of cloudy. It's kind of uncertain what Jesus is talking about here. What earthly things is Jesus referring to? I'd say let's start by understanding what the heavenly things would be that he's referring to. What heavenly things is he talking about? He's talking about the new birth. The birth from above, right? That's, that's what he means. And how did he illustrate this being born again, this being born from above, this, this new birth? Well, first of all, we can say it's, it's illustrated with the, the whole concept of birth. That, that's, that itself is an illustration of the truth of what happens in regeneration, uh, but then in verse 8, uh, he illustrates it with the wind. If you look back in verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So you see, Jesus is illustrating spiritual truths with earthly things. So those are the earthly things, the, the birth, the, the concept of birth, and the concept of the wind blowing wherever it wishes. 
Matthew Henry explained it this way. He says uh, about what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you won't believe me when I illustrate it with something you're all familiar with, how could you ever possibly understand if I were to speak with the tongue of angels, that language which mortals cannot utter? So Jesus is saying, we understand that Jesus is saying, I'm making this as as simple and as plain as I possibly can for you to understand. I'm taking something earthly that you're familiar with to illustrate spiritual truths, and you still won't believe me. I mean, he could, Jesus could just sit there and and fill their minds with head knowledge, feed their intellect all day long, but all all that All the information that goes into our our minds, our our intellect, is for naught if the heart will not also receive it. And that is how thorough the corruption of human nature is apart from the regenerating work of God. Matthew tells us of a time when Jesus and his disciples were, were out and about, and Jesus asks his disciples who the people say he is. And so the disciples respond by telling him, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. See, people had all kinds of ideas about who Jesus was. And by the way, they they still do have all kinds of ideas about who Jesus was. But Jesus kind of silences them with a second question. He says, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter famously says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, how did Peter know that? Had had he reasoned himself to that point? Had had he listened to Jesus and watched him heal enough people that, that he was able to figure out who Jesus was at this point? No. No, Jesus responds by telling us how Peter knew who Jesus was. The only way that anyone can know with heart knowledge the truth of the matter. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What a gift. What grace that God would cause a person to understand this. Because this is necessary for salvation. This is necessary to be saved. You have to know who Jesus is. You have to believe him, not just in your minds. That's, the, that's, the, that's what the demons have. That's what the devil has. He has head knowledge. No, with the heart. But a person can't reason their way into saving faith. Yeah, there, there is revelation of God in, in nature. As you look outside, you should know that God exists because things exist. Why is there something instead of nothing, when it's far more probable that there would be nothing instead of something. Okay, so yes, nature itself bears witness to God's existence, but one cannot reason from nature to what God is like, what, what pleases him, what displeases him, uh, how, how long has he been around, uh, what has he promised, what has he provided, what, what's necessary for me to be forgiven of my sins, What's necessary for a man to be saved? You can't reason your way to those answers purely from nature. The list goes on and on of things that you can't reason your way to. God must reveal these truths to us, and God does reveal these truths to us in his word. God can 
be known only as he is revealed to the heart of a man by the Holy Spirit through the word he has provided. Apart from the work of the Spirit within us, illuminating spiritual truth for our hearts to receive, we remain lost in the darkness. And this helps us to understand why Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, knew the scriptures, but didn't understand them, didn't live them, wasn't humbled by them. It's because he wasn't born again, at least not yet. Because it's not that the scriptures are not clear. They they are clear. It's that if they are understood and believed, they deliver a death blow to the pride of a man, and thus a man will deem them unacceptable in his natural state. You're not able to do anything to be saved by God. I have no room for ego then. And so my heart says, nope, there's got to be a different way. There's got to be something that you have to do to be saved. See, man needs God to reveal spiritual truth to him. We need God's word. We need him to instruct us. That's what the Bible is. It's God's instruction to mankind. It's not his suggestions to people. You know, which which biblical author says, you know, I I felt like God kind of laid something on my heart this morning, and I just want to share it with you guys. No, what do they say? They say, thus saith the Lord. I mean, they they say that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times throughout the scriptures. So it isn't the ideas or the opinions of the authors. That's what a skeptic will say. You know, why would I take these old writings by by man? Well, you you read that old book? Well, the truth is, truth doesn't get old. Truth is timeless. But, but, you know, it's written by, by people who had a particular cultural context and, you know, now we're so enlightened. We have science now. And I'd say, well, that, that may be so, but those people who, who wrote uh, the scriptures were not writing their own thoughts and ideas down. God himself was revealing himself through the human authors. As Peter explained in 2 Peter one twenty one. He said, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the first thing that we need is information. The first thing we need is is revelation. More than what nature informs us about God. But if we just stop there, we're still lost. We need more than that. Nicodemus had that. Needed more than that, didn't he? We need not only revelation, but we need illumination. The Holy Spirit must enlighten us in order for us to understand what he has told us in his word. We must have a heart to know, as Moses said. We must have eyes to see. We must have ears to hear. But we can't give ourselves these things. Moses said, God must give them to us. God must be the one to give us a heart to know, eyes to see, and ears to hear. And we're going to see this very theme 
over and over and over again in the gospel according to John. Jesus will offer living water to the woman at the well, and she'll think that Jesus is talking about Gatorade or some kind of of physical drink that you can drink and you'll never have a physical thirst again. Uh, Jesus will say, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. And the people who hear him are going to think that he's talking about cannibalism. So people would, would hear his words, but they didn't have ears to hear. They'd see him do these miracles, but they didn't have eyes to see. They had his word, but they didn't have a heart to know. They had revelation, but they were lacking illumination. What do these people need in order to understand the spiritual truths that Jesus is teaching? They need the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. They need illumination. Now I understand how this appears to us when we first are confronted with the reality of our need for illumination. Uh, You know, you you might say, well, so a, a person can't be saved unless he believes, but he cannot believe unless he's saved? Is that what you're saying? I mean, that seems like an endless cycle, doesn't it? A vicious circle. Um, Exactly. Yes, it is. But here's the thing. That shows us exactly how much we need God's grace. We are completely helpless apart from God's grace. God's intervening grace in regenerating a man is his only hope. And so the the skeptic might say, well, that doesn't seem fair. And I've been there. I I, I know that claim. Uh, We have to respond to that kind of claim by recognizing that this is a cry for justice and that nobody gets into heaven by receiving justice. Justice can only condemn us because we have all sinned. What we need is God's grace, his intervening grace, his mercy, for God to not give us what we all deserve. So maybe the skeptic would respond, uh, as, as so many do, and say, well, what makes Jesus more of an authority than anybody else? What makes him you know, a, a, an authority on spiritual masters more than, than Buddha, or more than Muhammad, or more than Joseph Smith, or more than Mary Baker Eddy? And, and Jesus answers that question next. He says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, the thing that makes Jesus an authority here is that neither Muhammad, nor Buddha, nor Joseph Smith, nor Mary Baker Eddy, nor any other religious figure from all of human history has gone up to heaven to receive spiritual truth. But Jesus came from heaven. That's that's the place he was before he condescended, took on flesh, and, and lived among mankind. Nobody else can make that claim. Nobody else can say that they came from heaven. And thus, nobody else has the authority to speak of heavenly matters that Jesus has. The person who rejects Jesus' authority, the person who rejects what Jesus says about humanity's need for the new birth, is setting themselves up as a higher authority than Jesus. To reject what Jesus says is to say that you know better than he does. Even though you haven't ascended up into heaven, and thus you couldn't possibly know what he knows because that's where he came from. To reject what God's word says is to call God a liar. 
That's why the Bible says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who gets to define those things? God does. God does. Only God does. We don't have the authority to call something good that God has called evil. And we don't have the authority to call something evil that God has called good. That's what a lot of people do. It's what the world does, and they do it all the time. But Scripture offers us this promise. The promise that forgiveness and redemption and cleansing of sin are all found in Jesus Christ alone. And our responsibility is to look to him in faith and to call upon him. And if you're thinking today, you know, that doesn't make any sense, how can you ask me to do that if it requires the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit? I'll just say this for now. The sovereignty of God in salvation does not nullify the responsibility of man to do what God instructs. And we're going to get into that a lot more before we're done with this passage in the weeks to come. Um, but all I can do, all anybody else can do, is issue the outward call to preach the gospel outwardly that people would, would hear and respond to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and to repent and put your faith in him entirely. You must be born again. Understand that the only way to be saved is to believe in Jesus Christ and to believe that he upheld the law perfectly in our place. I'm not just talking about intellectual knowledge. I'm talking about knowledge that does enter the mind, but it filters down to the heart, and the heart receives it and believes in it, believes that Christ is Lord, that he is God incarnate, that he upheld all the demands of the law in our place, and that unlike you and me, he lived a sinless life, and he died in our place taking the wrath of God in our place, covering us with his own righteousness, taking our sin upon himself, and believing that he rose again on the third day for our justification. And if you believe this, friends, how blessed are you? How blessed are you? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but God who is in heaven revealed it to you. And so what's our response to these truths? To believe what God says. To believe and to hunger for biblical truth. Not just to say, okay, I'll, I'll believe a certain amount of things, but, you know, I, I don't think that this, that this adds up. But to say, I, I'm willing to be wrong. If God's word is clear about something, I'm willing to be wrong. I want to be corrected. And so we submit ourselves in, in humble, joyful obedience and submission to Christ. We see the sweetness of God's sovereignty and salvation. And thus, in response to it, we live a life of thanksgiving unto God for all that he has done. What God has provided by grace, we believe and receive by faith, which fills us with hope. So may the truths that he has revealed in his holy word not only fill our minds, our intellect, but also our hearts in order that we would rightly and more fully love, glorify, and surrender 
to Jesus in our lives. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We recognize it and we receive it as the holy, inerrant, inspired word that you have given us, sufficient to inform us of all the things that we need to know, applicable to every aspect of our lives. We thank you for it. And yet at the same time, we confess to you that we have not embraced it as fully as we could. We recognize that every single one of us can still submit more, can still obey more. And so in the silence of our hearts, we confess to you the ways that we have not obeyed, the ways that we have sinned against you, remembering the promise that if we will confess our sins, Jesus, who is righteous and just, will cleanse us. And we thank you for the cleansing that we receive from Christ by believing in him, by him taking our sins upon himself on the cross and in exchange imputing, transferring his perfect righteousness to us. Lord, teach us, teach us to understand and to appreciate the great grace that you have shown us in salvation. Help us to understand these truths. Help us to, 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 get, to get these truths into our hearts, not that they would just fill our minds, but that they would, that they would filter into our hearts and fill our hearts with faith and submission and surrender unto Christ in order that he would be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper